for Balper, the T1 of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is the proprietor of the internet website, CrashBurnAlley.com. He's a volume tweeter and, as of late, is also a real-life book author. His name is Bill Baer, and he's responsible for a book called 100 Things Phillies Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. In what follows, we discuss some of the things that Phillies fans should know and do before they die. For example, how they should know that Bobby Abreu was actually a good baseball player while he played in Philadelphia. Uh, One of the things they should do is to eat a number of delicious cheesesteaks, which might actually contribute to an early death. And after we have all that sorted out, uh, we also discuss the present incarnation of the Philadelphia Phillies and take a look at what their chances are of repeating as champions of the National League East. It's my interview with Crashburn Alley's Bill Bear, and it begins right now. Except for uh, when I was doing my radio show and to do the uh, to go see the Phillies or or whatnot. So you are you are a person who is at once sort of um, I guess intimately connected to Philadelphia, um, at least insofar as you're intimately connected to the Philadelphia Phillies. Um, right. And yet at the same time, uh, at some level maybe, in terms of the day to day life. This is not a thing that has necessarily been part of your your experience. Right, right. Like if uh, I had to live in Philly, I, I probably wouldn't like it. I'm not really a city person. You're a uh, you're a country person, or you're you're or you feel comfortable in the suburbs. I feel comfortable in the suburbs. I don't know if that's like uh, tinged with racism or something, but definitely not. <laughs> but uh, yeah, just in terms of lifestyle. Actually, I want to tell you. Um, uh, now my wife is a is a uh, is a, an academic. Uh, she's an, and she does a lot of work with French language and literature. Um, and at one mm-hmm. point she was reading a, a rather oppressive and uh, long, but but uh, but also thorough. That would be the positive description. Thorough history of France, and uh, and it, um, she would sort of report to me um, interesting, you know. Um, Paragraphs that she'd come across, uh, interesting excerpts, and one of them was, or, or sort of, a, over the course of it, I got a real appreciation for the existence of the middle class, because it's something that I think yeah. now uh, we we regard as sort of, um, uh, I guess whatever the opposite of sexy is or romantic, right? It's very uh, staid and very uh, predictable. Blase. Blase is a fine word. I'll let you I'll let you work with that, and I'll I'll work with that too, <laughs> but. Um, at a certain point, the middle class didn't exist, and uh, and people really fought for a middle class, and uh, it made me, as a middle classer, uh, feel – it wasn't necessarily pride, but it was – because the alternative isn't being uh, rich. It's being it's being poor and, and um, uh, you know, whatever the wire tells us, being, uh, being poor and from a violent neighborhood is not, is not romantic. Mm-hmm. Right, right, definitely. Yeah. And, of course, the last couple of years, you, you've seen that, you know, front and center, unfortunately. Who has? I have? 
just in general, the royal uh, we, just in general as a, a country. Oh, well, certainly. With the uh, uh, economy and all that. Yeah, I was wondering if you noticed that the economy hasn't been very good. Have you noticed Have you noticed that? Yeah, it's kind of been a, a problem. I've been on a job hunt for more than a few months, and it gets really depressing sometimes. Let's um, – now, one thing uh, for which I, I'm going to guess you've been – You've been paid, uh, at least at least in compliments, if not actual American currency, uh, is for the work you've done writing a real life book. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that that we could call that will be the entree to this conversation. Although I plan to take it to, um, to to much you know filthier places, but I think we could start there. Um, you have written you have written a, a book. And I don't know if this, and I'm curious about this, if this is part of uh, of a popular series, or if this is just you being you. But you've written a book uh, called something to the effect of a hundred things that every Philly fan should know or do uh, before they die. Right. Yeah, it's part of a series. They have it for uh, all the sports. They have it for baseball, football, even college football. So it's uh, part of a big series, and mine is just the Phillies installment of it. They came to me with the idea and said, this is something uh, we think you could write. And they gave me kind of a, a rundown of what they expected. And I said, you know, I'm pretty sure I could do that, uh, and I'd be more than up for the task. So that's how that I got put together. And then, you know, eight months later, uh, there's a published book on my hands, and the, those months just kind of flew by. Um yeah, now I'm going to guess – now I don't know for a fact. I didn't check, but I'm going to guess there's not necessarily one of these for, say, the Arizona Diamondbacks. I don't believe so. Um, the ones that they actually sent me as the examples, I, I know they have it for the Cardinals. Yeah. Uh, the Twins uh, are both that I have. I think they also have them for, like, the Braves. Uh, I'm sure they have for the Yankees and Red Sox. But, right, I mean, these uh, are stories. They definitely haven't run through. Right. They haven't run through all 30 teams yet. Yeah, sure. And the the thing is that, uh, for example, with the amount of retirees in and around the Phoenix area, uh, it, it, it you wouldn't necessarily they wouldn't necessarily be able to do a hundred things before they died because they're already many of them elderly. Yeah, they're running out of time to do all that. Right. Yeah. So and maybe. Besides, like, the, the, uh, go ahead. Well, maybe if for an Arizona Diamondbacks book, it would be like. You know, 25 things. I don't know. I, I would say 15 is probably the pinnacle. Of that. It's like Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling, the 2001 team, Luis Gonzalez, and oh man, you're already stretching for ideas there. Yeah, that's right. You are. Well, um, uh, Willie Bloomquist, you get to you can see him play. Oh, yeah. Um, Absolutely. That's yeah, one of their, their marquee players yeah. in their history. Yeah, it is. Or, uh, no, wait. They have Willie Bloomquist now, but they did they also signed John McDonald. Uh, so they have, did they? Yeah, they have two. Uh, now, actually, McDonald's probably a better fielder than Bloomquist, although, uh, and this is damning with faint praise or, or uh, fainting with damn praise, but it, he's not quite the hitter that Willie Bloomquist is, which is not really a great thing to have said about oneself. But, um you so okay so as far as this book goes, for you, I, I mean, what was the writing process? Was it essentially like a, a, a situation where you sat down and kind of uh, mined, uh, you know, your sort of um, your experiences as a fan? Did you did you reach out to other people and ask them what they thought 
you know, what sort of memories or, I guess, phenomena within within the canon of Phillies fandom they felt were were, were vital to their to their experience. Uh, how did you go about writing the book? Uh, a lot of the book was uh, from my own experiences. Of course, I grew up with the terrible teams of the uh, mid and late 1990s, so there's certainly a gold mine there. I mean, even though the teams were so bad, you had wonderful characters such as Tomas Perez, who uh, we came to know as Pie Man. He was always known for uh, uh, putting shaving cream pies in players' faces when they got a, a walk-off hit or something like that. Um, and he was not that good. He was just a utility player. And then, you know, of course, you had Bobby Abreu and Scott Rowland and Kurt Schilling. Uh, so there's no shortage of information. Um, but also, I did do some crowdsourcing uh, just to see... Uh, what was important in their lives growing up with the Phillies. In particular, I talked to uh, a blogger from Baseball Ladies that covers all Philly sports. Uh, she lives in Virginia and goes to Nationals games, and uh, her name is Michelle O'Malley. And uh, the Phillies have really made a mark at Nationals at the National Stadium because they they come up in overwhelming numbers. When you go to a Nationals Phillies game, there there's Likely more Phillies fans there than Nationals fans, which is hard to believe, but uh, it's been been the case, and that's certainly a phenomena I covered in the book. And uh, talking to fans like her was instrumental in, in kind of piecing some of those chapters together. What's that drive? Uh, what's that drive from from Philadelphia to to DC? Um, I'm actually not sure. I've only uh, gone from Philly to DC uh, once, and my memory's kind of trash, so I'm gonna just guess and say like two and a half hours or something like that. Do it. Yeah, I guess. Know. That's the best. I mean, between the two of us, because there are two of us on the podcast, and one of us lives in the greater Philly area. So I'm going to hand it off to you. Um, well, you know what? I have the next best thing. I have Google Maps. I'm going to punch that in right now. Okay, good. Well, while you do that, I will inform you and our listeners that really nothing makes for, uh, for better radio than uh, one or the other, or ideally both of the participants on said radio program, uh, Googling and uh, Google mapping. That, that's, yep. what they, that's what they call radio gold, and uh, th- it's happening right now. Yeah, this is technology in action right here. That's what it is. Uh, Google Maps tells me two hours and 44 minutes. Not oh, bad. oh, very good, Bill Bear. I should win a prize. I was within 15 minutes. No, 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 no prize, actually. Just sell, oh. maybe just satisfaction. <laughs> I think I've made a big mistake. A podcast with no prizes. Oh, uh, um, you've made a number of other mistakes agreeing to to appear on this uh, present program. <laughs> um, yeah, oh, you, my professional credibility just flushed down the drain. Yeah, yeah, yep, that's a fact as well. Um, hey, you know, you mentioned you mentioned Bobby Abreu. Uh, he was a good player. Um, when the when the the, uh, the Phillies didn't really have any, and as as sometimes happens, uh, maybe I'm sort of guessing here, maybe I'm misremembering, but it's it sometimes happens that the best player on a team that's bad uh, will receive somehow will receive the blame for the team being bad because he's unable to, I guess, lift the team above their mediocrity. What uh, what are I, your think, I think that was certainly the case. Is that true? Yeah. What were your experiences as a Phillies fan of of Bobby Abreu? I mean, did you understand 
what sort of value he provided the team at the time, and what was your experience of how other Phillies fans reacted to him? I was and still is a, a not still is still am a huge Bobby Abreu fan. I mean, uh, his value certainly got got lost in in the failure of the Phillies uh, not reaching the playoffs, particularly after Scott Rowland and Kurt Schilling left. Schilling left in uh, in 2000, Rowland left in 2002, uh, and the Phillies after that they they were competitive, but they always floundered late in the season, like 2003. Uh, they were in contention with the Florida Marlins, the eventual world champions, for the NL wild card. But it uh, it slipped away in September. And I think a, a result of that, the frustration of that, along with uh, no one else really to blame. I mean, Bobby Bray was the star player on the Phillies after those two left. Uh, that certainly created some, some tension there. He was also known for not going... Uh, towards fly balls when the wall was close. It was kind of a, a subject of derision. Like, he just wouldn't go to the outfield wall to make a catch. He was afraid of it. Um, but otherwise, he was a half-decent defender. And, of course, his offense, it's, you know, generational. You don't find that very often. But, yeah, yeah he, he's he's a borderline Hall of Famer, actually, in, in my estimation. He's a he's an interesting, interesting player. And, of course, it all starts, actually, in... in um we can look at another book um, by another author who's written for Fangraphs and uh, currently Grantland, uh, Jonah Carey. Uh, Bobby Abreu's name is invoked in that book because I believe, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Bobby Abreu was picked out of the Astro system uh, by the Rays in the expansion draft. That's right. And then the Rays uh, traded him to the Phillies for shortstop Kevin Stocker, I believe. Right. Who uh, was Stocker for... <laughs> was uh, on the 93 team. Yeah. And it's at some point, I don't know if it was minutes after or years after, but I believe Stocker uh, questioned the wisdom of that trade, uh, <laughs> saying something to the effect of, I don't know why you did that, because Bobby Bray was a lot better than I am. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you look at that and – his name is going to be attached to stockers throughout history. They're always going to be mentioned together, just like they, you know, they're mentioned in my book. Uh, that's just people are going to compare, <laughs> and unfortunately, stocker doesn't uh, doesn't measure up. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't end up being. But but uh, Abreu is a is a strange player in that uh, he, I mean, just given the fact that he was left unprotected and then traded by the team that drafted him. Um, I think we can assume. Maybe I'm assuming too much here, but it, it seems like we can assume that he wasn't he wasn't necessarily valued as a top prospect, and yet um, owing to his um, uh, you know to decent power, uh, to excellent excellent play discipline, and uh, to his to his excellent base running, um, as you note, uh, he's he's in the conversation at least. I mean. He's, in terms of Fangraphs War, I'm guessing he's in uh, or, or has surpassed, for example, a Jim Rice threshold. I don't know if you have any wisdom yeah. to add on that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, he, he is sort of interesting. I remember one of uh, the very first articles I wrote, sort of analytical articles for Fangraphs, uh, uh, poorly informed, uh, I would say poorly conceived and poorly executed, um, and yet um, still there on the Internet. Uh, was the question, and maybe you can answer it. It was the question was, is Bobby Abreu fast? Because even up till a year or, or two ago, he still had excellent stolen base numbers, and yet his range use yards were miserable. 
Yeah, that's kind of speaks to per, personally that speaks to my questioning of UZR, but uh, because well, well that will require a fist fight, Bill Bear. I, I think that will require between us. Some yeah, I'll, I'll go call uh, Colin Wire and we'll go get a uh, get a fight going here. Yeah, yeah. I think I killed a guy with a trident. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wish you the best of luck in that. Maybe you shouldn't admit that on the air because literally tens of people listen to this. And who knows if any of them... Oh, tens. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe some of them have uh, family with, within the police the police force. But uh, yeah, continue please, though. Please, well, please, yeah, please. I mean, his defense, his defensive range versus his actual speed. I mean, was he fast? Uh, he wasn't terribly fast. I think he was more of a cerebral player, um, kind of like Chase Utley. Chase Utley's not really known for being blazing fast, but uh, he went a whole year. He, I forget what the exact numbers were, but he sold 20-plus base. I think it was 23. He went 23 for 23 and stolen bases, uh, and he's not particularly fast. Uh, Abreu just makes good decisions. He, he's very baseball smart. So in the outfield, he would he would always uh, shift for hitters or and put himself in the in the right position. And then the same thing on the bases, uh, watching the pitcher, uh, you know, counting the his delivery time and, and stuff like that. Uh, no, he was he was not a Juan Pierre, but he he was very smart. Now that's interesting that you you invoke uh, Chase Utley too. Maybe another player who, uh, you know, probably by um, prospect. Related publications, talent, talent evaluators, was um, not regarded as a great talent, as a good talent, but not as a great talent, and yet uh, has proven to be excellent. Um, I'm curious, to, to to the best of your knowledge, is there anything, um, I guess, within the Phillies front office or within um, their core of scouts that would lend itself to producing that sort of player or being able to identify that sort of player in the case of Abreu? Or do, or do you think it's just kind of a coincidence that they both um, came up and succeeded with the same the same club? I think there's absolutely a, a core reason why the Phillies are drafted so well. Uh, just going back to the, to the late 90s, they drafted Pat Burrell uh, in the first round. After that, you know, they got Howard and, and Rollins, Hamels, Utley, uh, even some lesser-known players, uh, Vance Worley, of course. Uh, it's not a, it's not a like a coincidence. There's a, a lot of intelligent people in the in the front office, especially under Ed Wade, and he gets buried a lot in Philadelphia. But uh, he and anybody else under him, they did a fantastic job when the team was floundering. They just stocked up talent year after year. They made smart decisions, and and uh, they're not the most sabermetrically oriented team, but they succeeded nonetheless. And uh, yeah, that's that's definitely a reason why why they got Bobby Ray, of course, and then Chase Utley blossomed as a star. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Ed Wade because um, I, I think that in there there are probably other examples of this where um, it's 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 very clearly, and, and perhaps it's uh, become even more so. Uh, in recent years, sort of, uh, I guess, what we might call like the, the Theo Epstein era, um, or you could call it, maybe you could call it the Billy Bean era. Either way, that, that sort of uh, savvy GM. Um, there's a different skill set involved in being a GM than being, for example, um, you know, a cross-checker or a, or a head or a director of scouting. 
those are those are two different jobs. One of them is almost solely dedicated to you know to evaluating players, whereas GMs uh, they they are um, have become even more so. I think the sort of figureheads for an organization, and and maybe that's something for, for which Wade uh, you know was not at which Wade was not particularly adept. But it seems like what you're suggesting is he actually does have a pretty keen eye for talent. Yeah, I think that's very true, and, and it's kind of been a, a subject of debate, especially over, over the last few years with the Phillies. Uh, do they really follow sabermetrics or not? And actually, I think if you look at the stats, uh, the things that Phillies have really succeeded in uh, recently, uh, in 2007 and 2008, they were really good at getting on base. Uh, they walked a lot. Uh, they played great defense. I believe they were, uh, according to UZR, the best defensive team of the last five seasons uh, in the National League. I think only the Rays were higher. Um, right, and that's, and that's, with, that's with Raul Abanez on the team. With Raul Abanez and uh, before him, Pat Burrell. Right, Pat so they Burrell should get like a special... Statue. Speaking of prizes, they deserve a prize for earning top UZR marks, even with those players. Yeah, imagine how good they'd be if they had uh, someone else out there. That's actually uh, a good point. Uh, but, yeah, the last couple of years, uh, go more pitching heavy, lots of strikeouts, very few walks. All these things are kind of tenants of sabermetrics. And Ruben Amaro's come out and, and said, you know, we don't really care about stats um, as their number one priority and stuff like that. So uh, I think that's a bit of a misdirection. I think the Phillies are, are pretty sabermetrically inclined and have been for for at least a few years. I do want to talk about uh, sort of the recent and present um, iterations of, of the Phillies momentarily, but I want to ask you uh, with regard to the uh, to the book, which which again is a uh, uh, hundred things Phillies fans should know and do before they die. Uh, I want to ask you what, if any, of the um, the hundred things were sort of I guess your you felt most strongly about maybe uh, maybe they they might be a bit obscure to uh, to a publisher uh, or even to a fan of, of another team, but for you uh, there was a, a particularly sort of uh, intimate connection. There was one uh, that really interested me. I believe it was on the uh, chapter for Ed Delahanty. Of course, he was a, a player from the early 1900s, uh, late 1800s. He's still ranked. He still ranks among the top in Phillies history in a lot of categories. He was just an all-around good hitter. Uh, but there was one story where I believe he was playing the outfield, and in those days the ballparks were very cavernous and they had weird, uh, you know, the way the walls uh, angled and such. Someone hit a ball and it went into what was known as a doghouse, and not, not a literal doghouse, but that's what they called it. Where they kept the scorecards, which they put on the on the scoreboard in the outfield, and the ball got trapped in this, and Delahanty went after it, and he got trapped in there. So his teammate had to come in and retrieve him. And by that time, the runner had already rounded the bases, were inside the park for him run. But uh, two historians, their names escape me, but they called that the most shameful uh, <laughs> home run of all time. That was the most, probably the most. I'll write in the book. That was the mo- that was the most fun you said. It was fun to research, uh, of course, and then to put that into words for for the book. That was pretty fun. 
Um, uh, yeah, that sounds that sounds ridiculous. Uh, and and that that ball was hit by uh, Cap Anson, I believe. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, Good save. Yeah, try my best. Uh, try my best using the internet one 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 more time again uh, for the purposes <laughs> of uh, radio radio magic. Um, no, no, actually, now that I have you here, though, it, uh, uh, and uh, we sort of mentioned briefly the, the you know the present version of the of the Phillies. Um, it's actually timely, I guess, to some degree, because uh, in the last like eight hours, um, the Washington Nationals have signed Edwin Jackson uh, to a one-year contract for something in the ballpark of ten million. Um, and of course, Edwin Jackson represents a, a pretty decent upgrade over, um, you know, wh- whomever he's replacing, be it John Lennon or Jimin Wong in the in the Nationals rotation. Of course, the Nationals have already uh, traded away um, uh, some pretty decent prospects, but for a, a sort of um, a pitcher with a resume in Gio Gonzalez, and so that team is is improved. Uh, the Florida Marlins. Uh, of course, spent quite a bit of money this offseason, um, probably wisely in Jose Reyes, maybe maybe less so on on Heath Bell. Although, uh, of course, the market for for closers is a, is a strange one, uh, one we don't necessarily understand, or, or one we understand from in terms of um, how pitchers are paid, uh, but not necessarily if, if they're paid correctly. But I'm curious, uh, uh, you know, this is this is maybe made uh, the NL East a little bit more competitive. A little bit more more interesting this offseason, and of course the Phillies will be without uh, one of their certainly marquee names, if not necessarily most productive players, uh, Ryan Howard, for the first month or two of the season. What, what's uh, in terms of assessing the Phillies' chances this year? Um, how do you weigh in on that? I sort of think that Phillies are the by by and large the favorites. I think they're a 95 plus win team still. But uh, certainly the NL East is uh, a lot better, and the Phillies are not as good as they were last year, I don't think. I wasn't particularly happy with this offseason, you know, spending all that money on Papelbon. I don't really think they did too well with the bench. So I think uh, the Phillies basically kind of stood pat, maybe uh, regressed back a little bit, especially considering some of the luck involved in uh, getting 102 regular season wins. But, yeah, they're the overall favorites. I think they have to be with that starting rotation. But the Nationals are scary. I think they're a 500 team at least. Uh, certainly getting Jackson, like you said, Gonzalez, uh, bringing in a pretty solid pitching staff. I'm actually not looking forward to, to facing a guy like Gio Gonzalez because uh, he's the type of guy that the Phillies just struggle against, a guy with uh, hit and miss control. The Phillies really like a guy that they can predict. Otherwise, uh, this was the case last year. It was very frustrating. They would just chase and chase and chase and try to force runs. When uh, so that's certainly something I'm not looking forward to. The Braves are going to be good. Uh, they basically stood pat. I don't think they've done anything this off season, to be honest. And yet they're still pretty uh, good. I mean, really, like if if uh, you know if Jason Hayward is anything, you know, if, if he's more similar to his. Uh, 2010 season and his 2011 season, that's a pretty good team. Yeah, and if Chipper Jones can stay on the field, uh, on, on that note, actually, that's the big key for the for the Phillies this year is staying healthy. That's been their downfall the last couple of years. 
especially with Chase Utley. Uh, you know, he's he he's known for going all out 100% of the time on a routine ground ball. He'll bust it down the line towards first. And uh, he's had a couple of injuries, and it's been hard for him to get 600 plate appearances. If he can do that, and Jimmy Rollins stays on the field, Ryan Howard returns sometime before the All Star break. Uh, they'll be in good shape, but if the infield goes down, uh, they're in trouble. The NLEs will be up for grabs, that's for sure. Well, I'm curious as to uh, certainly um, uh, around fan graphs and uh, sort of around the saber-minded um, analysts on the Internet, the, the issue of Ryan Howard and, and in particular Ryan Howard's giant contract uh, is sort of unavoidable at some point. Uh, I'm curious as to to what your impression is of of that contract. Do you think it's a it's a vast overpay, or do you think that there's a certain logic to it? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty known for my uh, thoughts on this subject. I've gotten into a lot of uh, hot water with this, but I think the contract was a monumental mistake, and I don't mean that with any hyperbole. I think it's a a huge mistake, and it was at the time, and it's even larger now. Uh, Ryan Howard had two years before he had uh, the ability to hit free agency. So there was no need to rush in and give him a huge contract. If you're going to give him a contract that early, uh, you want to get it below market value. But at that point, they were setting the market. What Prince Fielder got and what Albert Pujols got, while it was significantly more than what Howard got, Howard set the stage for that. So they could, the Phillies, of course, could have set it at a lower margin, but... Uh, Amara felt like he had to to overpay Howard to keep him in Philly and keep him happy. So you think that was the logic uh, the for, thing, for the signing then was to was to keep Howard around and that was the only way that Amaro felt he would be able to do it. Yeah, he didn't want Howard to get the free agency. He didn't want to get in a bidding war uh, with the, potentially the Yankees or the Red Sox or another big market team. So avoiding that the cost certainty of having Howard around, I, I think that's a big thing for Amaro. I think he really values values that. That's why you saw Cliff Lee with a huge contract, and Roy Halladay got got his extension. They're trying to get Cole Hamels locked up. Uh, the Phillies are a team that really value knowing what they're going to pay going into uh, going into any season. Uh, they're very mindful of the luxury tax this year. It's at 178 million, so they're brushing up against that. And they're every one million or five hundred thousand that you can know here and there helps you map out the future better. Now, a, a curious thing. Um, this is apart from the Ryan Howard uh, discussion, but but still maybe touches on the the subject of uh, of mysterious decisions made by the the Philadelphia Phillies, or at least uh, at least slightly mysterious to an outsider. Um, this off season, the the Phillies have signed. Ty Wigginton, they've signed Lance Nix, they've signed Juan Pierre. Jim Tomey. Right, Jim Tomey, but in particular the three guys I've, I've mentioned are all guys who could play a corner outfield spot. Um, oh, okay, yeah, and that's true. And the curious thing is that, um, at least to me, the Phillies appear to have um, in Dom Brown – a pretty uh, an eligible uh, um, and and a very affordable outfielder. Uh, now I've definitely heard there's some concerns regarding his defense, but I I'm gonna guess you know I mean I, it appears to me as though relative to Juan Pierre relative 
um, to Ty Wigginton relative to Lance Nix, he's superior already at a young age, as he was probably to Raul Banias last year. So I'm curious if you could shed some light on, on that situation. Yeah, I, I think they kind of handled the Dominic Brown situation poorly. And I kind of go back to Bobby Abreu with this because Dom Brown shows great plate discipline. He he has an idea of what he's done at the plate. And that's not really something you can cultivate uh, easily in the minor leagues. That's something that players either have or uh, they develop with a lot of major league experience. And finding a player like Dom Brown who already has it and you don't really need to work on it. That, that's something valuable. Uh, unfortunately, they gave him scant playing time at the major league level. He's certainly ready, um, but they want him to get another year at AAA to start 2012 so he can learn how to play left field instead of right field because they have Hunter Pence there. And it's really stunting his development. So they're going with what I would what I would describe as an inferior uh, amalgamation in left field. They're going to use uh, Lance Nix and John Mayberry, presumably in a platoon. Uh, if need be, Wigginton can play there. Um, but I think a platoon with Brown and, and Mayberry would be awesome. Unfortunately, uh, that's not what they're going to do. Do you think that you'll you'll cry a tear uh, every time you, you see Lance Nix take left field? Yeah, especially defensively. Don Brown is not uh, uh, great defensively, but Lance Nix isn't any better. He's much worse. <laughs> So whenever there's a, a fly ball that hits the hits a warning track and it's not caught, and I think of how, how fast Don Brown is, and I think oh he would have he would have got that, yeah. And then I'm gonna gonna cry a tear. Well, I'll tell you what, Bill Bear, my uh, in those instances, my I'll reach out to you uh, psychically, if not actually, because you live in Philadelphia and I, I live in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, so it's it's impossible physically. Uh, we share uh, unhealthy food. Uh, yeah, that's adoration, right. I guess is the word there. Well, let's uh, let's end on that note uh, before we get uh, before we uh, we we leave this edition of the podcast. That um, you do uh, reserve a um, I guess it's a chapter. I guess you call it a chapter of your uh, forthcoming book. Do we have a release date on that, Bill Bear? Uh, it's actually out now. So if you want to go on Amazon or. Uh, Visit my website at crashbarnelli.com. You can click a link to go there. Uh, it's out now if you want to buy it. It's out, and and um, I assume that uh, with every copy sold, uh, um, some money goes directly into your pocket, or at least your your PayPal account or something like that. Uh, yeah, I get royalties from it, so every copy you buy it does help me. Yeah, and uh, you've already told us that you're unemployed, so um, so I would yeah I would. Uh, this is not necessarily a call to action, but. For every listener who doesn't want Bill Bear to die uh, or wake up in a ditch or something like that, just think about yeah. that. I'm just saying you're helping a just guy out. Poor old me. Yeah. yeah, we don't want we don't want that. We don't need that. Just help. I mean, how many nights am I going to have to stay in because I I can't spend money and I'm going to be on Twitter instead, clogging up your feed. Uh, right. Yeah. Right. Much like uh, much like. Um, a number of players have clogged up, uh, clogged up the bases uh, all around the league. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Like let's a Jim Rice. <laughs> let's talk. Let's talk about the food, though. Um, of course, the the cheesesteak is a, is an important. It's a it's a food staple. In fact, it's, it's I think they refer to it as the fifth food group um, in the greater Philadelphia area. 
Um, it looks like maybe uh, uh, per uh, chapter 18, um, you suggest eating a cheesesteak at Pat's or Gino's. Is there like a blood feud between these places or, or are they relatively um, – are they on relatively good terms? Uh, they're on relatively good terms. I mean, you're going to have people who prefer one or the other for reasons, but they're basically the same thing. I, I don't think if you did a taste test, you could tell the difference between the two, to be honest. What does a cheesesteak do to you um, emotionally? How would you describe that? Well, it depends on the cheesesteak that you're getting. If you're getting just a plain old cheesesteak from any old place, it's it's not life-changing, but if you get a really good one, it's a religious experience. Uh, there's one place near me called uh, Las Vegas. I swear by them. What's it called, They're sir? One, one more time. Las Vegas. Okay, all right. Uh, they make the best cheesesteak, I think, anywhere on the planet. And I've had uh, quite a few cheesesteaks in my lifetime. I've had Pats and Gino's and others in the area, but uh, the way they do it, they chop up. The, the meat, fine. What uh, Pat's and Gino's do is they just use a slab of meat and put it on a bun. And uh, you don't really get the oil, um, you know, the grease from the food. You don't really get that full effect the way you do when you chop it up. So, uh, you know, everybody in Philadelphia is going to have their own place outside of Pat's and Gino's that they swear by. And what spade is for me is, is that. That's the place to do it, yeah. Well, yeah, and of course, uh, now I'm not a native Wisconsinite, I'm far from it, but um, I will say that um, at least regarding cheese, um, I've developed a, a profound respect for the capacity of that food item um, to change a life in a um, short amount of time. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the fried cheese curd. Have you ever put one of those in your mouth? I have not. Yeah. Is that anything like the Canadian dish where you have the, the fries and they cover them with, like, cheese or something? Well, or am okay. I thinking something completely? No, no, you're on the right path, Bill Bear. It's a, um, you need to go much further down that path, though. What you're talking about is poutine. Uh, and in fact, that's, uh, and that's in its own right, that's a fantastic dish. That's uh, French fries covered with gravy uh, and then cheese curds on top. Uh, a fried cheese curd. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, a fried cheese curd is just one of those cheese curds except... Uh, Bread and fried. Uh, I mean, you might mistake it for um, a sort of, uh, I guess, a cousin. And maybe correct. Maybe it's actually. I shouldn't say mistake. At some level, it's a cousin of a mozzarella stick. Um, okay. But the best, um, the best cheese curd, the best fried cheese curd, will uh, it will compel you to do um, ridiculous and beautiful things simultaneously. Uh, for example, I've been known uh, upon eating a, an excellent cheese curd, fried cheese curd, to just to take off my pants at a at a restaurant. And um, you know, well, well, that sounds pleasant. It's yeah, it's my gift to the world. That's what I say. <laughs> yeah. Um, but as for you, as in terms of your gift to the world, I think that it's uh, it's been doing this podcast, Bill Bear. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure uh, speaking with you. The time kind of just flew by. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now you did like a couple other podcasts. You did a couple other podcasts, I think, uh, leading up to this one, right? I did one, and then I have a couple uh, tentatively scheduled for next week. So I'm kind of running the circuit here. Yeah. Do you kind of feel like Do you kind of feel like this is probably going to be the champion of podcasts, or do you feel? I mean, do you feel like it suits you? Do you Do you feel comfortable? 
You know, I've done a couple of podcasts in my lifetime, and I have to say this has been one of the more, I would say it's a very organic uh, conversation that we've had. It's uh, like, here's, uh, here's the first topic, yeah. and then you ask that question, and I answer it, and then the next question. It just feels like uh, we're two guys in a bar just talking about whatever comes on our minds. So, uh, yeah. Well, I told you. I, I think told it's a you. Chance to be number one. Yeah. In fact, I didn't. I wasn't lying to you. I said uh, I think the I think the podcast works best when it uh, most resembles a conversation um, between you know two two people who are interested in a, in similar things. And I, I think that we've accomplished that. I feel comfortable with that. We're just two guys who enjoy seeing other guys run around a uh, a field, making a bunch of left turns. Yeah. Chasing after a ball. Yeah. When you what break it down like that, it 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 seems. Very sad, not just a li- not just a little bit sad. Uh, <laughs> it seems very very sad. But then uh, you can make the argument pretty easily that that so is life. Yeah, I went there. Well, well, personally, uh, I'd rather watch guys run around on a field making a bunch of left turns than uh, uh, football, which is basically chasing after the hand egg. I, lo- I like to call football hand egg. Oh, that's a good term. Is that? It's uh, not a ball. Did you make that? Uh, did you make that term up? No, no, I totally lifted lifted that from the internet. Oh yeah, yeah. The internet produces a lot of quality terms. I've noticed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm not afraid to pirate them. Oh yeah, steal them because you don't have to cite them. It's just the internet. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and hey, for anybody listening, feel free to pirate my book. I'm actually completely cool with that. Pirate it. Whoa. Hello. Yep, I went there. You're like the fish of the inter of baseball blogging and baseball writing. Maybe that's not a good. And then the big whale comes up and swallows me. Uh, I was saying the band, the 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 band fish. I believe the band fish. Ph. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't smoke weed, so I didn't get the reference, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) It's good that you say that. Um, Listen, I think. uh, I think it's pretty clear that we've uh, perfected the form known as the podcast, um, and I think we, so. we shouldn't push it any further. Um, what, that, what that compels me to do, though, is to is to both uh, thank you for appearing on this podcast, this edition of the podcast, and uh, congratulate you uh, for writing a real book. Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah. I never thought I'd write a book, but here I am. You did accidentally. All right. Uh, well, listen. Uh, hey, listeners, that's Bill Bear, um, proprietor of of Crash Bernalli and of a real book. Uh, I'm Carson Sestouli, proprietor of this podcast, and this has been another edition, another successful edition of Fangraphs Audio. Don't hang up, Bill Bear.